In the past, you'd have like two or three main competitors and a startup right now in most markets has like 15 competitors. So it's becoming a very competitive market. There's a very big pie, even in Australia alone, but still you need to like continue pushing the boundaries on what's next and aligning yourself with the right customers to take on those ideas and help you drive that forward. Thanks for listening to this episode of People Building Businesses. This podcast is produced by YBF Ventures, which is a startup innovation hub with spaces in Melbourne and Sydney. Find out more about YBF and how we help startups to scale, scale-ups to succeed, and corporates to innovate at ybfventures.com. Today, we're deep diving into tech and hospitality, and we're really excited to speak to a very fast-growing startup in Melbourne called Mr. Young. They're helping local bars, cafes, and restaurants stay alive in these uncertain times in light of the huge societal and economic disruptions caused by COVID-19, a very timely topic for the world we live in today. I'm very excited to introduce you to the CEO and co-founder of Mr. Yum, Kim Teo. Kim, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much. That was a well-prepared introduction. Thank you. Uh, you, you guys make it very easy with your uh, your website and the, what you talk about. And, you know, so I was really just paraphrasing what you have on the website. So kudos to you, really. <laughs> so, Kim, um, we really love to start the podcast by understanding more about Kim, the person. So before we deep dive into Mr. Yum, could you tell us a bit more about yourself, maybe starting with, you know, where you grew up? Yeah, that's super interesting. I uh, grew up in Singapore, moved to Perth when I was 10 years old. Um, actually back to Singapore, but I went to an international school for about six years. Um, so grew up in, an, I guess, in a small, smallish grade, 60, 70 people in year 12, but from probably 20, 30 different nationalities. Um, so I learned pretty early on around like adapting and moving around when you're 10 and 12 years old is not exactly what most parents in Australia would like feel very comfortable doing. They're often even scared of pulling their kids out of one school in one suburb and moving to another. Um, but I met some really amazing people that had moved around every two, every three years in their growing up years and um, just grew up to be, I think, a lot more uh, adaptable, a lot more resilient. Know that you go to a new place and you'll probably feel fairly anxious and uneasy for a while, but it gets better. And um, at 17, moved to Melbourne on my own with my, um, my sister came a year later and my brother was already here. And uh, went to Monash and haven't really left. Uh, lived in Sydney for a year, uh, in Brisbane for about three years. So lived in different cities in Australia, but haven't uh, left Australia in the last you know, 15, 16 years. Um, I did economics and biomed at uni, which is the weirdest combination of a degree you could probably find. And there were only like eight people that did that combination. I don't even know why they bothered running it. Um, and after uni, I took a job at JP Morgan <laughs> as an investment banking um, analyst and did the super Asian, super academic thing. 
Um, and actually about 11 months in, decided that I didn't want to do that anymore. And my dad was like up in arms. He was like, people would kill for this opportunity. And I was like, this place is not for me. Uh, I didn't understand. The, the thing is, I actually just didn't understand. I never understood the products, like financial instruments. And I couldn't uh, materialize like products in, in my head that were like risk-based products and derivatives, which is what we were trading. And, um, and I knew I couldn't fall in love with it. And I think I learned very early that I couldn't be like very good at something that I wasn't, um, yeah, wasn't enjoying. So made the hard decision to leave to his uh, disappointment. <laughs> um, and then did a consulting job for three and a half years that I really, really enjoyed and taught me a lot about, um, you know, stakeholder management and proving yourself up as a young um, career person, trying to um, influence a room of people that are much more senior, much older than you. It's probably one of the biggest things that I learned in that role. Um, knowing that I guess I'd always try and start something of my own. My parents both were business people. Um, so I think I always knew that the career was a path to meeting good people, meeting a network, building a building a base, and um, that I would try and do a bunch of things on my own later on. Turns out you don't really do anything on your own. You always have a team. So I don't know where that saying comes from, like do something of my own. It's never really just yours. Um, and I don't think I would ever start something completely on my own. That's a very intimidating thing to think. Um, but yeah, I've been... This is my third business. Actually, I think it's my fourth. Yeah, my fourth. So it's not been a clean run. We failed a lot of things and tested a lot of things. And um, now we've got Mr. Young, which we're very lucky to, I guess, have had, you know, started probably 12, 18 months before COVID hit. So kind of right place at the right time when our industry is going through the biggest transformation. Um, I heard today, like someone call it a reset, which I thought was a very good kind of way of paraphrasing what the last eight weeks have been for the industry. And we're lucky to have, you know, had some technology and kind of right, right place at the right time. Startups are very difficult. And I think as a founder, you can only hope for um, some luck on your side when it comes to timing. And we've been, yeah, super lucky with not with not like you know lucky that COVID happened, but lucky that restaurants have had um, a reason to stop, assess, redesign their service models um, on the basis of a world that's different. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks for the rundown. It was really insightful. Um, before we get into the Mr. Yum part, and before we get into the entrepreneurial side of of yourself, you actually have like you said, went through a couple of different corporates. You were, you know, market sector lead apparently at, at BP, which is a, quite a huge sounding role. It sounds like a really <laughs> intense role, you know, senior and national category manager at Spotless. So these are huge roles in itself in, in corporates. What what made you want to jump out having had that success in corporate world to then starting your, your first company, which was Simply Borrowed? If I... Yeah, and e-commerce. I actually started my first company on the side while in my corporate job, which I think most people do. Um, I remember like booking three hour meetings with myself and just like chilling out in a room working on my own startup while being in my job. I think everyone goes to that phase when they've got one foot out the door. Um, 
I think the thing that I knew was that eventually that, you know, there's like the benefits of corporate are around security and safety and having some kind of paycheck coming in the door. And I didn't want to wait um, until I was too much older to take the leap of faith and take the risk because there's a time in your life when you can, you know, afford to get paid hardly anything. And then there's times in your life when you've got family and stuff where that is actually very impractical. And I didn't have a mortgage really at the time. I didn't have, you know, a lot of financial commitment. So it made it a little bit easier to think like, what's the worst thing that could happen? I'll just come back to corporate, but now I know I'll never do that. Um, <laughs> and I think I just, I, um, I always knew I wanted to do something. I was just waiting for the right idea. And I remember when I had the idea for Neighbor Flavor, which is actually the reason I left my corporate job, I couldn't stop thinking about it for like probably two weeks straight. Um, and then I found the perfect excuse to leave, which had nothing to do with probably the startup, had everything to do with me just wanting to leave, um, which was someone else in the team was about to be made redundant. And I really didn't want him to be made redundant because he was awesome. And I just said to my boss, you're going to give him my job and I'm going to leave because I'm not going to be here in like three months time anyway. And he's got like, He's got like a couple of kids and um, that came out of a acquisition. So he was part of a acquired company and his role was being made redundant. And he was struggling to look for or struggling to secure something else. And I was like, well, I'm not going to be here. He can do my job way, way better than I can. So give him the job and I'm going to leave. Um, and I did that like three weeks into having the idea for Neighbor Flavor, which is a super impractical thing to do. And I would never advise someone to do that because I just sat there like probably um or you know I, I did that six months too early right like I could have waited till I had a product and market and had some customers and had some traction before making such a silly mistake um but I got like consulting work pretty quickly and just did you know three days a week contracting uh for the next six months as I built Misty Yum on the side I mean built Neighbor Flavor on the side so what, what then was the transition from Neighbor Flavor into your next uh, company, Pitch Black, which... Neighbor, yeah. Yeah, Neighbor Flavor, um, I actually did with the founders of Pitch Black. So it was a bit of a, so Pitch Black was a startup incubator. Um, I met them, we did Neighbor Flavor together. Neighbor Flavor was a, um, got a lot of hype. It was a marketplace where you could buy home cooked meals from people that lived around you. At the time, Uber wasn't around. Uber Eats and Deliveroo didn't exist. Um, uh, Airbnb was starting to get a lot of traction. And actually, Uber was just becoming legalized at the time. So, like, gig economy was exploding and everyone thought it was the best idea. Um, turns out it's really, really difficult to make the unit economics work. And the cost of food is low. What people are willing to pay for um, a meal that's home cooked is, you know, 12 bucks, 15 bucks at most. And when you take into consideration what the profit margins are on those, it's actually really difficult to incentivize a cook to do it for a job. And you can really only get people doing it as a hobby. Um, and if you've got people doing it as a hobby, they're not really there to make money. Then they're only doing it once every month, once every three or four weeks. Um, your cost per acquisition is pretty high and then you don't make any money on them for years because 
they're not cooking frequently enough. Uh, it became really apparent. We actually moved to New York for three months, my co-founder Kerry and I, and um, worked there with a startup who was doing exactly the same thing just two years ahead of us. We hit them, hit them up from Australia. They just, um, yeah, became friends and they were like, if it's not going to, if it's like illegal in Australia, come over and do it with us in the States. And, um, but they've, you know, they raised 16 mil and ended up not doing the idea in the same way. Um, and so we were lucky. We didn't, we raised 500 grand and we didn't take the money. We um, didn't take on any investors so we didn't have to pay anyone back. And it was really around the just the maths doesn't work and I I will never do like I'm so hyper conscious now of unit economics and um and I think you have to learn that the hard way a little bit like a lot of startups think that they'll just price really really cheap from day one and um that they'll increase their prices over time but you know if the price doesn't work and you can't actually get the lifetime value out of a customer then um, it's very difficult to grow and scale a business if you if you don't have a model where customers are willing to pay what you actually need them to pay for the product. How do you make the decision between you know calling it calling it the end of a company versus trying to hold on and trying to you know? Oh, that was so hard. Yeah, everyone knows the story of, you know, for example, Evernote, uh, where, you know, they were almost out of money and suddenly an investor came in and gave them that last bit of cash and now they're big. But, you know, at some point, you know, for some companies, you have to say, you know, that this is the, the finish line. So how did you make that decision? I, um, there were two things. There was actually a decision that it wasn't going to make to work in Australia. And then there was a decision that the idea wasn't going to be um, feasible I thought in Australia or the States and turns out seven years later, probably hundreds of people have tried and no one's made it work. So um, I don't regret the decision. The decision in Australia was quite easy. It was actually illegal to cook in your house and sell the food that you made and cooks could make, could get a fine of up to $40,000. Um, so that was an easy call. I was like, that is not something I want to be responsible for. Um, and then in the States, I actually remember we stood around um, in a circle with the team in the States and the founder asked everyone why they hadn't used their $50 credit that was provided as part of the team, you know, like just an incentive or a, um, a benefit. And I realized that people didn't want to order their dinner at one o'clock in the afternoon and that they didn't really want to go and pick up their meal from um, someone that they didn't know. It's quite like a weird stranger approach to interaction. And if you can't get your team to do it, then it's going to be pretty hard to get strangers to do it. And there was something missing in the convenience that Uber Eats came along and solved with delivery. And, um, and it became apparent later on that people don't want to go out of their way to go and pick up a meal they don't want to order at one o'clock for um, like an on-demand type of meal right they want to they want to decide um, pretty soon to the time when they are yeah looking to purchase and so that was and we didn't like I didn't really say anything at the time because this was someone else's company and like pretty rude to 
make the call. But actually that night I went back to the apartment with my co-founder, Carrie, and I was like, I don't think this is going to work. This is messed up in all sorts of ways. And, um, and then we started trying to find other models and other, um, like, could you sell like a frozen, like, could you sell frozen items and sell like a week's worth of food and make the unit costs better because then you're selling hundreds of dollars worth of food in one transaction and there's efficiencies with the cook, it's um, efficiencies with the sell. So we, we started like tweaking the model and trying to find a bunch of other ways, but yeah, it never really stuck. And, um, and yeah, then we just ended up saying, I don't think we're gonna stay because this wasn't like what we came for. Um, but we made some good friends in the meantime, got to live in New York for three months um, and learned a lot about growing a startup. We were fourth and fifth there. And by the time we left, I think there were 11 people. That's incredible. Yeah. So, yeah. so how, how did you then move from Neighbor Flavor into starting Pitch Black where you became head of ventures there as well? Yeah, I joined Pitch Black. I didn't, um, I wasn't one of the original founders. The original founders uh, I partnered with on neighbor flavor as an incubator so after neighbor flavor didn't work out they were like what are you going to do kim um and i was like i don't know i'm just going to see what happens and they were they asked me to come and build pitch black with them so i joined them moved to brizzy um ended up dating adrian who is the one of the original founders um so we were business partners and then started dating about two years into being partners um and Head of Ventures, I guess, was always my dream. Like, I wanted, we loved working with other entrepreneurs and helping them start their ideas, as I'm sure you guys do with YBF. Um, but at the same time, we, a big part of our mission was always to practice what we preach and be doing as well as teaching. Otherwise, you just become an academic and you're not really teaching from experience. So we wanted to go back to experimenting and trying our own stuff again. And Mr. Yum was an idea that we had for about nine months, didn't do anything with. And then one day decided we would experiment with it and see what happens. And it just started taking off. Like you just know, I think when the market's telling you that it's um, a good product and that they, um, there is a space in the, in, in the industry for it. Um, and I think we just knew pretty early on because we set a fail metric of like 5% of people using it and we got like 16% of people using it in the first week. And um, so that was a, you know, 3x on our fail metric. And Adrian was very kind. He said, I'm going to kick you out of Pitch Black and you're going to go and run Mr. Yum while I run Pitch Black. So he did that for another um, probably eight or nine months while I built the team and, you know, got more people onto Mr. Yum and now he's full time, which has been yeah, amazing. And Pitch Black is now run by um one of our other directors, Cam. So we've kind of still managed to retain Pitch Black and we try and feed as much that we learn through to the founders that are coming through the the incubator. Awesome. So talk to us about that experiment, that that initial Mr. Yum experiment. Yeah. Where did the sure. inspiration come from? So Misty Yum actually started as a visual menu and the concept was, um, you know, Instagram is super visual and text-based menus are not. People would go on Instagram, they go on Google Images, they're looking for photos, 
um, they find like text-based menus actually pretty unhelpful. So why couldn't we turn uh, a menu into something a little bit more helpful, more digital, more beautiful? Um, that was basically the concept of Misty Yum. So we built a very simple product. We, um, we, just, we hired a, like a junior developer. Um, we plugged in an Airtable backend into a React frontend. Um, and within two weeks, we had like a, all it was was like a CRUD app. It didn't do anything. It was like, you put in some images, you put in some uh, names and descriptions and prices and away you go. Um, we were very, I think the one thing that we probably did a little bit early on was QR codes. We, from the very start, we had QR codes on the menu. So you got, go into a venue, uh, you'd see a QR code on the menu, it would say, see photos of every dish. You'd scan the QR code with your phone and it would bring up this beautiful version of the text-based menu. And at the time, like people didn't know what QR codes were or that a lot of the reaction we were getting is like, I thought these were dead. I thought like QR codes came and gone. And they came and gone, but it was because the likes of Apple and Samsung hadn't supported it native in the, in the phone. But now that's changed. And we, we did bet a bit early. We were probably six months after Apple brought it out in the camera and Samsung hadn't brought it out in the camera at the time. Um, but we saw all the trends and we knew that it was around to stay given what's happening in Asia. There's QR codes everywhere. Like everyone pays everything on QR codes. It's the most amazing, um, you know, physical to digital plat like tool you can get. And it's like actually, just, it's like free um, with no hardware, no um, setup costs. You can print a QR code and you've got this amazing way of transforming your physical stuff into digital formations. Um, and so that was a little bit difficult, but now, but now you know, like, QR codes are everywhere. Um, there's heaps of venues doing QR codes for contact tracing. Um, I think anyone that hasn't scanned a QR code before with their phone will have used one after three months from today. Um, so that's going to be incredibly yeah, helpful for us and, um, and just a really important part of our, our growth, just people knowing what the hell this thing is on the menu. Um, yeah, so we started off as, a, in a, as an experiment. We set a fail metric. If we get it into three cafes and less than 5% of people use it, then we'll just bin it and not tell anyone that we ever did it um, and pretend it didn't exist. But it got some good, got some good traction within the first um, week, which was, yeah, really, really cool. Yeah, well, in Melbourne, we love our brunch. Um, and I think that's an Australian thing as well, actually. And I remember going to a cafe once and seeing this little QR code with a Mr. Yum on the top and I, I was curious I'm like Wait, what is this thing and I scanned it and you know this beautiful menu came out with all the dishes and you know beautifully photographed and I think that was that was a really great idea um, and you've since moved into delivery as well how did you get into into that aspect yeah that definitely came out of COVID um, we saw our restaurants and yeah cafe partners and pubs um, have to close and we didn't know how long it would last for, right? Like, it's actually been probably much shorter than anyone expected. Um, we thought, like, like everyone probably thought, this might be a, you know, six-month um, term, and we knew we had to do something to help them, so we brought out pickup and delivery alongside with the table ordering solution that we'd built. So it went visual menu, and then it evolved after three months into being, being able to do ordering. If you can use a menu to 
via menu, then you can take an order and take a payment and then it becomes an e-commerce platform. So that's really what it is now. It's an e-commerce online ordering platform for Food and Bev and that can, that can include um, in-venue ordering as well as pickup and delivery. It's not delivery in the sense that we don't have drivers and we don't have a network of drivers that we self-manage, but we do plug into some third parties that have a network of drivers and also restaurants are actually um, more often like they're not using their own staff to do deliveries at the moment, given they've been closed for a while. And even though they're reopening now, they're still not really at full capacity. So there's still team members that can do deliveries and they're really figuring out how to do it themselves. Awesome. And uh, going back to what uh, an earlier comment you made, um, you know, you, you mentioned that this was an experiment and apparently you're quite a big advocate for the no code revolution. So did, did that play a part in how you built Mr. Young from the ground up in the early days? I, yeah, I think I, I think no code and code, like you need to find the perfect balance um, or try and find a balance between them. We use, um, no code platforms for I mean I say no code but they're still coding and then they seem to be quite technical actually like you try and build a Webflow website and you feel like you need to know some front-end development to do that well um, so we use we use Webflow for all of our marketing pages so our website is built on Webflow um, our like yeah partner pages landing pages um, we started spinning out these neighborhood pages recently, which, you know, you can find all the restaurants that are on this year, I'm in a particular area, all of that's built on Webflow. And we do that because we've got great design capability in the team and don't want to distract our um, developers with what actually is more of a marketing project than a um, software project and keep them focused entirely on building up the platform, the customer facing side and the venue management side. So everything in our platform is custom coded and everything that's marketing is not. But as a, I guess as an experimentation, as, you know, as founders trying to get their idea off the ground, there's just so much out there now. Like there's, there's so like Airtable as a back end. If you're just doing a CRUD, like what's CRUD? Create, read, um, what's you? It's, it's, it's basically like, if you want to create a website that all you do is, or all it does is show some stuff, um, you can use platforms like Airtable to be the back end, and it's very simple um, to get a front end developer to build that uh, front end. And you know the best thing about that is software is actually quite complex, and there's many parts to it. So there's, you know, you've got to do the infrastructure part, the the back end, and the front end and to find someone that can do all three at a price that a startup can um, can can afford is next to impossible. So you either find someone that's great at front end, you find someone that's great at back end, um, and you try and use some existing infrastructure tools. But yeah, I think to get off the ground, there's so much stuff out there that um, can plug into each other and use Zapier to hook things up and um, you can actually see if customers want your product way before spending a lot of time and um, and money on hiring the right devs because I think with devs, you kind of do pay for what you get. Yeah, like they're expensive. <laughs> 
um, the, the software or the... Yeah, we've got... Um, we've pretty much hired a, a team of, like, all senior devs, which is... I will never do anything differently um, ever again. It's been, like, magical just having guns um, at each, you know, phase, like, each part of that platform, as I said before. And then we've got an amazing designer that does all the Webflow pages so we can keep those two things separate. And as well, like, if we want to change something on our sales page, which is our home page, we can just go in and change it on Webflow. Whereas before you'd have to like, oh, the code is working on this. Let's not distract them. But then there's something that you want to add to your sales page. You should just be able to add it to your sales page. So yeah, I think I'm a big advocate for keeping the sales page separate to the, um, the product. Yeah, for, unless they're linked somehow and you need them to be linked, but for as long as possible. Um, there's so many cool tools out there like uh, Airtable and Webflow are just two of the many. Awesome. I think that's good advice for people listening to the podcast because a lot of them are actually, you know, thinking about how they can start their own businesses. And I'm sure a lot of listeners out there aren't, you know, don't have a technical background or don't have a background being developers. So that's really, really handy uh, advice for them. Um, so moving on to the next stage of Mr. Yum, in, in May 2019, you raised $1.5 million in seed funding. Could you talk us through how you came across that and what the process was like for, for your company? Yeah, um, yeah, that happened pretty pretty quickly after launching. I think it was six months after launching Ms. TM, we were able to secure that seed funding. I think there's two parts to securing funding. There's um, the, like, you know, what, what traction do you have? Like the real hard facts. Um, and then there's the, I guess, the networking and sales element to that. So it's like, how do you build up a great, um, how do you build a great business? And then how do you go on to sell that business to investors and sell the future vision? Um, we were really fortunate early on that we had some, actually some customers that wanted to put capital into Misty Yum. Um, so our first big, we had smaller investors before that, but most of them were just friends who wanted to, um, you know, wanted to like not miss out or wanted to um, help. And the first big investor we had was actually one of our customers, a big hospitality group in Australia. Um, and they super forward thinking and them wanting to invest made it actually like quite easy for us to raise the rest of the round. So I think the hardest thing with investment is always the first. Yeah, the like the lead, the significant first investor, who's going to take that first leap of faith to giving your business enough credibility to actually put some money into it. Um, and having a big hospitality group back the product just gave every other you know, um, investor that we chatted to a lot of confidence that there was actually like a space in the market and that we were the right people to solve that problem. Um, I guess the technicality side of it, we did it on a safe, um, which I would definitely recommend to a lot of early stage founders. So that's a simple agreement for future equity, an easy way to grab money without um, needing to you know, justify your valuations to the wazi. You still have to, like, you still have a valuation cap, you still have to 
argue why that's relevant. Um, and I could talk for ages about this weird way of coming up with valuations at seed stage, which I think is more like how much do you need and then what percentage can you actually give up as, a, as an early stage company. Um, but yeah, getting the first investor, I would say is like more quality than quantity. Um, you know, you know when someone gets it and you just know when they don't. And if you're pitching to an investor and like at the problem slide, they're struggling, either like you've done a really bad job, but probably like, probably not. I'm, I'm sure you've been able to articulate your problem well enough, but if their eyes are glazing over and they have no idea what you're talking about at the problem stage, like you're not going to get them. You're not going to. You're not going to convince them to invest in a problem that they've never spent any time thinking about. So I think the one probably piece of advice for like early stage companies doing um, early fundraising is try and find someone that has spent the last few years thinking about the problem that you're trying to solve. And then all you've got to do is prove that you're, you're the one or you, you and your team are going to be able to, 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 to solve that problem. If you're starting at explaining the problem, you're, you're in so much trouble. <laughs> it's just a waste of time. And then you spend heaps of time like justifying the problem and finding them articles. And it's like, man, if they don't understand the problem, just, just next. Just move on to the next person. Um, but that doesn't mean like future investors can't be in that boat. It just means it's just the first one. Yeah. And your investor was the Australian venue company, is that right? Yeah, that's it. Um, and then, you know, a couple of other big investors came in behind them um, but having them believe in the product and believe in the team gave the others a lot of confidence and at the same time I think the other thing to remember is like you've got to do capital raising at a time when you know you're going to see some incredible growth because you want to every few weeks be able to go back to the potential investors and tell them what you're up to so you've got to take them on a journey and um, say this is what we're up to and then every few weeks be able to update them on your numbers, update them on your traction and um, prove that you can actually yeah, grow a business in the time that you're also capital raising and then get them super excited. Sure, that's awesome. And you know, safes aren't a mechanism that Australian investors are used to. It seems to be more prevalent in the US and, and people here tend to gravitate more towards convertible notes. Um, was it you who recommended going down the safe option or was it your investor who, who brought that no, we did. We did. Um, I'd followed it for a long time, and that's the advantage of doing something like Pitch Black. We had, um, for a long time, had safe agreements. We have like an Australian version that we used with our, um, you know, founders through Pitch Black. So I think we'd been a big advocates for it for a very long time. Anyway, um, it's no different to a convertible note in the theory, but it's not debt, which is. A big difference <laughs> so there's like it's not really that different but there's actually a huge difference and um, also there's like you know what why would you do anything different to what the states are doing yeah like they're expecting you to hit states level numbers you know your AR numbers that the investors try and get you to reach are no different to what the states would expect um, for valuation so I think Australia is trying to align themselves as much with the funding mechanisms of the US because a lot of big, you know, a lot of Australian startups end up flipping and 
becoming a U.S. company later down the track anyway. So um, I think there's no harm in trying to use something that's aligned with the U.S. rather than just sticking. And once I think the main thing is like safes are quite hard to explain if you don't. So you need to get really good at explaining them as a founder because it's not something that people understand. So they're like, what the hell is this thing? But once you break it down and you explain to them that they have this. So with a safe, there is a cap on the valuation usually, but also that means that if you don't raise your next round at the cap, they actually get downside risk protection. So if you raise at a five mil cap and the next round you raise at three mil, then the safes convert at three mil, not at five. So it actually is a way for investors to feel like, you know, if they don't believe in your valuation, time will tell. Yeah, it's a simpler mechanism compared to Connote where there's interest payments and repayment terms and, well, some of them do at least. So it's a, it's a more straightforward mechanism. Yeah, it like. yeah. yeah, it's like a, like a, a you know, convertible note is debt and it's a loan as opposed to an investment. investment. Yeah. So before we move on to the topic uh, from the topic of investment, I just want to end on, on this quote from the CEO of the Australian venue company, Paul Watterson. I think this is on your website as well. He said that without exaggeration, Mr. Yum is the most significant development in the pub industry since the invention of draught beer. That's a pretty huge compliment. How do you feel about that? He's so funny, that guy. <laughs> um, oh, he's been... I mean, uh, I think it's very complimentary and I think if we could even slightly compare ourselves to um, to tap beer or draft beer, then that's incredibly exciting. Um, I, I guess I guess in a lot of ways, like pubs haven't changed in like 20 years, you know. So, you know, what other inventions have there been in the old corner pub? Uh, not too many. Um, so... Yeah, I think he he's always been a futurist around um, actually improving the cut. Like, imagine this: you you go to a pub and there's a huge line at the bar. Like, if you don't want to get up, how do you serve your car? How do you act, like? It's not about taking the hospitality away. It's actually about improving the customer experience because you can order food at the table, you can hang out with your friends, you can continue the conversation. Um, you don't have to get broken away and go and stand in the line for 10, 15 minutes. And also the pub makes more money because they're not limited by the number of people that can order at any one time. Um, so I think the, the economics just work and it's not really like, it's not even new. China's had it for years. Everyone orders on their phone in, in China. And uh, there's actually a pub group in the UK called Weatherspoons and they've had their own app where people can order from their table for since 2017 um so these inventions aren't actually like new and the concept of ordering on your phone is like e-commerce uber eats delivery everyone's ordering everything from their phone so really you're just trying to put that into an in-venue experience and doing that well and i think um he's just very excited and um a great mentor and um and just yeah i think with an investor, you can't really ask for more. Someone that can help you grow your company, knows lots of people, um, can give you some very critical feedback, can push you when you need to. So been super lucky with Paul. 
Awesome. And, and that's actually a great segue into our next uh, question. You mentioned two very familiar names to anyone who's been following this industry or anyone who's really, you know, into food to begin with, Uber Eats and Deliveroo. Now that Mr. Yum's moved into, you know, the food delivery segment, what makes you different to Uber Eats and Deliveroo and how do you compete with them? We're super different. We, we, don't, um, we don't acquire customers and we don't manage drivers which are two of the biggest costs of a company like Uber Eats and Deliveroo. And that's how we can keep our fees at four and a half percent compared to what they have to charge, which is 30 to 35%. Um, the, I guess the, the type of venue that we support around delivery is also really different to the type of venue that they um, would get. Like a lot of our restaurant partners, they don't cross over with and Uber Eats and Deliveroo. And it's mostly around the fact that mar- marketplace concepts like Uber Eats and Deliveroo have a very aligned consumer value proposition. So you say to a consumer, you can order anytime, there's no minimum spend, the, you know, like there's, there's, there's these specific promises that you've made to the consumer around the experience that you're going to give them, which is very much built on this Uber ride sharing, like being able to click a button and get a right in five minutes was his original vision. So the Eats vision is very similar. With Mr. Yum, the venue can customize their minimum order value. They can put in whatever delivery fee they want. They can set a, an, a value of which over above that, that minimum, that delivery is free. And they can essentially create a world where their minimum orders are $65, $70 instead of 30 to $35 on Uber Eats. Um, and at 65 to $70, you can actually start to do deliveries quite cost effectively. So it's really around like, how do we, we're just, we're, we're essentially giving the tools to the venue to be able to manage their deliveries in a way where they can do the delivery for a total cost of 15%, which is very different to the likes of Uber Eats, where they don't give you any option around uh, customizing any of those levels and they take a standard 30 to 35%. Um, so, yeah. Yeah. And Uber Eats very recently publicly lowered their uh, rates from 35% to 30%. Do you think that was in response to Mr. Yum or you know, have they have issued they, any kind of response to what, what you're doing in market? I, I don't think it's in a response directly to us. I think there were people much more angry than us in the market, mostly restaurateurs um, throwing their hands up and um, and rightly just saying, you know, We've currently got literally no other trade. Um, so can't you do something about what we're, what we're facing right now? You don't have to drop your rates forever, but in these times, can't you do something? So I think it was a response to the, the COVID um, times and the, there was a lot. There was just people were ripping into them, like in every, um, in every I guess, angle, in every city, in every country. Like... Uh, San Fran came out and said, like the government had to say that their Uber Eats Grubhub deliveries were capped at 15%. Um, Chicago came out and enforced that um, every customer needs a completely transparent breakdown of their order, which means like exactly the amount that goes to the restaurant, exactly the amount that goes to the delivery partners, exactly the amount that goes to the drivers, or the profit, everything. So like just show, like forcing them to show the customers exactly what 
um, is happening behind the scenes. So in the US, like there was already like governments were coming down and saying, hey, like you need to you need to do something different. We need your help. Um, in New Zealand, Jacinta came out and said, don't use Uber Eats. So I don't think it was in relation. I don't I think I mean, we did get a letter from Deliveroo saying like, hey, don't don't publish our rates like that. Um, but I don't think it was. You know, I don't think their actions were in relation to us. I think they run, I think they run a good, like, that business is, people think they're, you know, putting, putting money in their pockets and, like, that business is an expensive business to run. And consumers are so precious about how fast they want their food um, and, you know, how, like, you wait 45 minutes and you're not, uh, you're not happy, right? So... Um, I think the level of consumer expectation around food delivery has created a very expensive business model to run. Um, so you pay for what you get. Yeah, you really have to pay for that. You can't, there's no, yeah, they're not, um, they're not profiting a lot of money. They're actually running a very tight, very lean operation um, and have optimised everything about that operation. And still they have to charge 30%. So I think... Um, it's not so easy to say, hey, why don't you drop your rates to 15%? I don't think that's going to happen. I think, um, I think they need to make their business work too. Otherwise, they won't be around. Sure. And, you know, you mentioned Mr. Young pivoting into this model because of COVID-19. Australia's always obviously been a very fortunate position relative to a lot of countries where we're now starting to see restrictions gradually being eased. So what's Mr. Young's reaction to that are you going to continue on this path or are you going to you know pivot further or what's the strategy from here um i think the strategy yeah it's a really good question uh the strategy from here is um now to be able to offer you know all three products so be able to do the pickup and delivery as well as do the table ordering and as venues need to still do all three like they can't they don't have a full restaurant at the moment so they still need to run their delivery services and their pickup services to keep the revenue up. Um, and I think when JobKeeper goes away in September, that's going to be like an even bigger um, reality. So uh, we're just going to keep, keep doing what we're doing and um, table ordering is still our core focus with the ability to help restaurants also do takeaway off the one menu. And... Um, continue their delivery services that they've worked pretty hard at building and I think a lot of them have actually gone like I can probably like some people have gone I'm, I don't want to do delivery I'm never doing this um, others have gone I think I could actually do this and make a profitable business out of it and um, even post-covid I'm going to hire a delivery driver and keep going so um, yeah it's been really interesting and we just have to keep growing and building better and better product and continue innovating on um on where we want to take you know where we want to take the product it's getting very competitive um I was listening to something this morning around pricing strategies actually like a podcast and they were saying that in the past you'd have like two or three main competitors um and a startup right now um in most in most markets has like 15 competitors not all of them very good, but still, you know, 15 competitors. And so it's becoming a very competitive market. There's a very big pie, even in Australia alone, but still you need to like continue pushing the boundaries on 
what's next and um, aligning yourself with the right customers to take on those ideas and help drive you help help you drive that forward. Well, Kim, thank you so much for being on the podcast. Thank you for spending, you know, an evening with YBF, even though you're, I'm sure, extremely busy right now, helping restaurants, helping bars. Uh, really appreciate it. And I'm sure our listeners will get a lot out of this podcast. So thank you for spending time Thanks, with us man. today. Thanks,